This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. We got some big names for you. Barry Zito, Steve Garvey, Rick Sutcliffe, Ned Coletti, and Craig Wallenbrock all coming your way. But we're going to start with the left-hander, Barry Zito. Barry Zito, what a career he had with the athletics. He was a three-time All-Star. He was an American League Cy Young Award winner. He led the American League in wins in 2002, a World Series champion. Here is our conversation with the one-time left-hander for the Athletics. Barry, it has been a while. Uh, how have you been? It's good to see you. Things are good, man. We're, you know, holding it down in Nashville and uh, trying to stay healthy and stay, you know, stay out of the out of the mix like most people right now. So we, we've been good, man. We haven't been too affected by the, the COVID, luckily, but we've also been keeping our heads underwater, so. Well, it's this time of the year where I know you're real busy with music, but you know, it's where we start talking about playoff baseball. And right now the A's are in this series with the L.A. Dodgers where, you know, these are two of the better teams in the game. And before you know it, going to have a day off on Monday and then start the wild card round, which is just three games. I mean, how crazy is that going to be? Whoever wins two out of three is moving on either to Southern California or to Texas. It's crazy, man. Yeah, that reminds me of back in college, like you'd play the regional, you know, the super regional. And uh, yeah, it's it's cool, man. I think, you know, obviously baseball has had to adjust to these crazy times this year with COVID, but uh, the fans are in for some really good stuff here coming up. What was the playoffs like for you as a younger player and then as a veteran player with the Giants? Um, You know, I think as a young player, you always – have this kind of bravado and you don't quite know what you're up against. Uh, you're just stoked to be like in the playoffs and, you know, playing on TV and people on the news are talking about you. At least that was for me. So I didn't quite know what I was up against, but you know, as a veteran player, you do know, you know how uh, unusual it is to make it to the postseason. So you really want to capitalize on that opportunity. Yeah, because we're not talking that you're playing in small markets now. You're playing against the New York Yankees. You're playing against the Boston Red Sox. You were playing on the the biggest, you know, the the biggest stage in all of baseball when you were young and playing for the A's. Yeah, yeah, we seem to always go up against those East Coast teams. Um, you know, again, which just makes you rise to the occasion because you're out there in Old Yankee Stadium or Fenway and. I mean, there's no better atmosphere for playoffs than you know somewhere on the East Coast with those crazy fans, man. And what do you remember back in 06 about you and Johan Santana? That was a very special time, really, for both of you in your careers. Yeah, Johan obviously was, you know, he was like the best left-handed pitcher 
Um, he had one or two Cy Young, I think, at that point. And uh, I remember specifically in that playoff game, uh, we faced each other in the first round of the uh, division series, 106. But uh, I remember he had not lost a game at home in over a year. And so I had heard that. And, of course, you know, I didn't know if we stood a chance because he, he'd always shut us down. But Frank Thomas came up big, and uh, I think he hit two solo homers off Johan. And uh, we ended up winning two to one. Yeah, that was, uh, you look back at what a quality series that was. And really, just about all the series you played in with such good, high-quality baseball. Sometimes they get away, team sweeps the other team, just dominant. Uh, the series you played in were always so close, and they always came down to certain pitches. They're always very exciting to watch. No, absolutely, yeah. I mean, for better and for worse, too, because we, you know, I remember in uh, 2000 and three uh we were you know i pitched against uh pedro in game five of the division series and unfortunately we didn't make that happen but i remember manny ramirez hit a homer off me in the sixth inning put them four to one and uh i think that was very exciting for the other sides fans at that point um but i specifically remember manny literally didn't round first base for it must have been a minute i mean it felt like five minutes but dude he was literally just like slow motion walking down and I was so mad because I think he was just pimping that thing as hard as you possibly could. And, you know, he had a right to. It was a big homer, but still, I'll never forget that homer he hit off me. You know, before, before we start talking about this new song that you have, uh, the book Curveball, we brought you on and said, you know, how big it was for someone like you who had all the success that, that you had in your career to talk about how it always wasn't so easy and, and the things that you went through and the struggles and the demons. How has the book gone for you, and uh, has it has, has it exceeded expectations? Yeah, I mean, the book for us was just – it was a passion thing, right, for, for me and, and, of course, my manager who's been helping me with this vision. But, you know, it's just something where I wanted to just be totally honest about the stories. And, you know, we see people on TV, and it's easy to um, kind of see it as a whole glamorous thing, but really on the inside, usually in somebody's head that's out there on the mound or doing something, you know, that we think is special as onlookers, there's usually some darkness in there. And so for me, I just wanted to shed light on that and really express to people what it was like for me to deal with fame and money and all the things that, you know, me and everyone else thought that was going to be, you know, uh, lead to all good things and, and eternal happiness. And, Ultimately, it um, it created a lot of obstacles and difficulty that I had to overcome, but that led to a lot of wisdom in my life. So, you know, that's one thing that I talk about with Bob Melvin or really any manager or any leader of a sports team is that, you know, you've got to manage these 25 guys now, 26 and now with COVID 28. I mean, you got to manage not only the, the struggles that they're having there at the ballpark. But you, you got to know if your player is having issues away from the ballpark. I mean, there's so many different variables that a manager, everybody wants to think it's just about analytics and numbers, but that's not the case. You still have to have somebody manage the people and they have to be really good at it. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a, an underrated skill uh, on the manager side because you just feel like if you have talented people, uh, everything's going to go perfectly. And how many teams have we seen that, you know, on paper – uh, it's probably the most talent in the league, but it's usually the teams of the scrappy guys that just get along and um, really don't care about, you know, what, how good they're supposed to be. They're just having a great time. It's, it's those guys usually that put together World Series teams. 
So just type in Barry Zito Curveball. You can still get the book online. Very, very easy. And it is a great read. Talk about this new song you have that you've written. Yeah, we came out with the song. Um, you know, I'd written a bunch of songs in Nashville over the years. And so this one, I was always attached to this song. It's called Ballpark Kids. And uh, that's the cool thing about songs, you know, is, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be written yesterday to be relevant. And uh, if it's a good song, people will connect with it. And so this was a song that, you know, I'd written over a year ago. Uh, and it was one that I'd always wanted to record. And, you know, so the timing was just right. You know, it was kind of a a baseball season that was a little strange and no fans. And I just figured it'd be a nice uplifting thing for people that had played baseball as kids. And most of us have, you know, here in this country, we grow up playing catch with our moms or dads. And um, so the song ballpark kids is just about being a kid and uh, growing up on a baseball field. And uh, there's a line in the song that I love, you know, it wasn't girls books or skateboards. It was numbers on the scoreboard. And, uh, it just, you know, when you're a kid playing sports, you don't really care about anything else. And uh, you kind of have that tunnel vision. So the song's really fun. And the way it was recorded was really fun and upbeat. And, you know, it's just a feel-good song. And these songs that are being timeless. How many times have you, have you heard, put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. I mean, we've been hearing that our entire careers, for God's sakes. Oh, yeah. We can, like, count on one hand, like, the baseball songs that we always heard, right? Like, um, you know, Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. or Yeah. You know, put me in coach or, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, even the journey song, right. From, uh, you know, don't stop believing. I mean, I know that's a kind of a giants thing too, but I just hear that song. I mean, and, and I always heard that song and it was just like, it, it fired me up to play baseball. What is it like for you as a songwriter? Cause I can tell you, I, I know you're going to like this. If I type in Barry Zito right now, it says American musician. It doesn't say major league baseball player. I, I bet that makes you proud. That's really funny. Hold on. I got to try that. Let's see. Here. I did for me on Google, on my Google Chrome. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. But then it's all pictures of baseball. That's funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you've I'm, had two careers. It's great. You know, for me, like, there's a guy that inspires me and his name is Mike Reed. And, you know, Mike Reed was a pro bowl NFL football guy for, you know, for the Bengals in the seventies. And then he ended up writing songs in Nashville and he became a, a songwriting hall of famer. And so, you know, it is possible. Uh, but, you know, I think for me, you know, music being my first love, I just always wanted to, to do that and spend my time doing that. And, um, but it's been humbling. I'll tell you when you're in a certain field and you do something for fun, you, you always think it's going to be fun. You think you'll have that relation to it. When you go into that fun thing as now your, your career, it can be, you know, bittersweet. There's, there's difficult days when you're doing this all the time. You know, it's not just like jamming with guitar, like cool, you know, hanging out with my friends. It's like, no, I'm approaching this very seriously. And a lot of times when you put all your eggs in that basket, I mean, it's, uh, you just have your good and bad days, you know, but overall it's great. When you hear someone sing your song and you know it's going to be successful, what is that feeling like for you? Um, you know, that's a feeling that's really incredible. I mean, if you can write a song that somebody else is going to sing, then that means that you truly did your job as a songwriter. Um, and, you know, there's there's outside writers who write specifically for other artists, and then there's artists who write for their own songs. And so that's kind of what I've enjoyed transitioning into um, 
lately is uh, writing songs for myself that I'm going to cut, you know, that music that nobody's heard yet, but stuff that is much different than anything we've heard yet. Um, a little more urban, a little more pop, a little more synthesizers and uh, probably a darker lyrical content. Probably not going to be as much of a pick me up as some of my other music, but <laughs> I think I got a lot of darkness inside that, uh, that I need to put somewhere, man. So, you know. Well, you know, here on Ace Cast Live, whether it's music, whether it's a book, whatever you're doing, we will always help any way we can because you know what you will always mean to the A's fan base. Yeah, well, Chris, I appreciate it, man. It's always fun coming on with you. And, um, you know, I, I just appreciate the support. And it's always fun to talk baseball. I mean, to be honest, I forget. I, I actually do forget that I like have this whole other skill set that, you know, I guess it would be in coaching now, but I, it's, I can tend to forget that I had this whole other career because I'm so immersed right now, but um, it's nice to talk with you and remember all those wonderful memories, you know, on the field in Oakland. Well, I can tell you this, you know, what we've been doing with, with these like ring central or Google meet zoom calls. It's good just to see people's faces. It's one thing to hear people, but it's good to just see people good that you're doing well. Congratulations on the second career. We'll never forget your first career, but uh, keep going on the second career and we'll talk to you soon and be safe with the family. Thank you so much, Chris. You have a great day, man. From one all-star to another, what a career Steve Garvey had. A World Series champion, a National League MVP, a 10-time all-star, a four-time gold glove winner. We got to talk to the Garve about the Dodgers, the A's, and uh, potential for the postseason. Here is the great first baseman. Steve Garvey is going to join us in moments. Or I should say, join us in a moment. Hi there. Steve, how you doing? It's Chris Townsend with the A's. Hey, Chris. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Great to have you on the program again. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for very, uh, very good timing, very topical, huh? Yeah, I mean, this is a it's a great matchup between the A's and the Dodgers, and obviously, and we got to really see it last night, the firepower that the Dodgers have is very impressive. Well, you know, it is, um, you know, if you notice though, and I, of course I'm, you know, I'm a Dodger and so forth and, uh, I'm a little prejudiced with the team, but, um, you know, with this new baseball, if you look at the home runs and the distance, uh, over the fence, <laughs> uh, you know, it's probably 10 to 15 feet with this new baseball and, uh, one hit the top of the fence last night, Taylor's ball kind of snapped hooked over uh, Muncie's and Seegers are very good, but uh, in this new millennial of baseball, you get the ball in the air and you got a good chance. And obviously, you know, not only the Dodgers, but the A's uh, and the A's, I think, rely a lot on, on the home run power. Um, it's going to boil down to that. Last night was a good example. You know, it's interesting that you, you, you mentioned the ball because our pitching coach, Scott Emerson, believes there's also a juiced bat. As he says, years ago, you used to see X amount of bats broken almost every single game, and now you don't see bats being broken, and there's the sealant that they put on these bats. So could could we be dealing not only with juice ball, but also juice bats compared to what like you guys had? <laughs> well, uh, you know, in many ways, if you look at it, you know, a lot of times I, I like to see an analyst uh, for these teams, that, you know, most of the time you have a pitcher, and the Dodgers have a great combination of Davis and Oral Hershiser. 
but you need a, a, a guy that's you know been a position player and hitter to talk about this because uh, when when I was playing back you know starting in the 70s to 90 and then beginning I would think about somewhere in the 90s maple started to come come about which is a harder wood uh, before that it was ash and you could actually see some indentations uh, on ash because it was a softer uh, softer wood now I used to I used to have mine what they call flame treated and flame treating was supposed to harden the bat somewhat, seal it, and then you put a varnish on it. Nowadays, you have this, uh, and by the way, there was, there was, you could tell the age of a bat because of the width of the, uh, of the grain. The greater the width, the older the bat, the harder the bat. Um, so now you've got maple, very fine grain, but a very hard bat. Uh, that in lower temperatures, now you'll see this a lot in the fall, um, once you start to get into northern you know, cities and you may get rain, you may get cold because of the late fall, you see bats snap in half and, and people you say, gosh, how did that happen? Well, that's what maple does. And with maple, you also can't see the stress fractures in it that you could see in ash. So that's the difference. Now, the big difference, too, is not only is maple harder, but it's true. The varnish that is put on it now. Uh, is measured, I think, one to ten or one to, to nine. And uh, a bat company like Chandler, um, which I know, uh, their varnish is about an eight five. So you, it, it is almost as hard as it can legally get. So you combine that with extra velocity, uh, with a ball with a heartbeat, so to speak, and uh, and you see, uh, you know, distances that you you haven't seen prior to the last, you know, 10 years or so. So, um, you know, and, I, and you also get the ricochet factor because of the uh, the increased average speed of fastballs now. So that's why, and I used to always say power sells, but sometimes too much power, you know, causes suspicion and makes you think, you know, games can be decided by, I've seen balls hit off the end or actually jam shots, um, that have gone over the fence and everybody looks at each other. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just an aspect of the game today. You know, when you would get a batch of bats, how would you decide which was your gamer, which did you uh, use in BP or the cages and which ones would you just, you know, you wouldn't use at all. Well, if you look back into uh, like earlier in the, uh, in the 20th century, uh, Players like Ty Cobb and uh, maybe a, a, a Gehrig and other you know guys that weren't considered power hitters may use two or three bats a year, uh, and then as time went on, the evolution of uh, you know the game itself and the treating of wood and so forth, um, bats became a little more brittle, and you used to see guys use maybe a dozen or two. I never fell in love with one bat because I was a notorious bat breaker because. My bat was 35 inches, 35 ounces. And, uh, and our theory used to be inches to ounces in terms of balance. I used to look for wide grain, but I, I used to stay in there. And because I had good bat speed and a closed stance, and I, I covered the outside part of the plate, I would get jammed and still be able to slice the ball down the line. I may lose the bat. I, I'd gladly exchange a bat for a double, you know, anytime. So that, uh, and I think there were times when Nolan Ryan would try to jam me two or three times and I'd 
bloop it down the line for a double, and I'd get to second base, and I would stand there, and he'd turn around and go, Bammer Gar, hit the ball hard. <laughs> I would go, keep it away from me. You know, don't jam me. And we would smile at each other and, you know, mutual respect. But uh, when you talk about hitting, these are the nuances that I think the audience uh, doesn't always get. The reasons why a guy hit a pitch or the reason why uh, they're not covering the outside half of the plate is predominantly because hitters have open stances now and they don't always get closed to be able to cover the outside. If you look at a you know, early in this pandemic, there are a lot of historic games. And if you watched a game from 10, 15 years ago and on, everybody had a close stance. And why did they do that? Because they wanted to be able to cover the plate. They hit down through the ball to create backspin. Um, you know, people ask me, hey, hey, Garb, did you have a launch angle? I said, of course I had a launch angle. How did they get the ball in the ballpark? But we didn't believe in hitting low to high. We believed in hitting down through the ball, hitting line drives. Uh, and uh, and the offense that comes with that, which is moving runners over, hitting running. Uh, you know, I tell people once I started bunting for base hits, uh, I would say five years into my career, I would get maybe 10, 12 base hits a year, which was 25 points on my average. So just by being able to do that um, and being being smart, you know, and then the third baseman would play me in more than he normally would, and I'd get another six to eight hits by him because he was 10 feet closer in. So all these things, if you're smart, um, you can pick up 25, 30 points by just using your head. Well, you know, I, I think about last night, and Matt Olson, our first baseman, came up to the plate, and the Dodgers yeah. put four outfielders and three infielders, but all three infielders were on the right side. There was no one playing the left side, and he strikes out. What would what would have been like for you if they basically said no first baseman, no second baseman, and they give you the entire right side? Oh, I I, I think maybe five I bet five six hundred because uh, you know only in a situation where you would have to if you had power try to drive the ball out. Uh, the game is too tough. It's 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 arguably the single greatest and most difficult specific skill sport uh, is hitting a baseball. And uh, and when you're given something, you know you you've got to take it. Uh, I could stand at home plate. If I saw the the center fielder drift to his left towards right center, I knew the pitcher was going to to pitch me away. Uh, there was no shifts back then. Uh, nobody could play me you know, a good shift on me because I, I was a guy that thought right, right center, um, cover the outside part of the plate. I'd go that way. If I wanted to have the pitcher pitch me in, I'd move closer to the plate and those smarty pants catchers would look at my feet, give me the inside. And as the guy was delivering the ball, I'd back up six inches and get my fastball. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's so tough that if you don't think, um, then you don't, you won't, seize opportunities and get the most of them. So, uh, you know, last night, you know, if I was Mr. Olson, I would have taken two shots to the left side. Now, you know what? If you can slap the ball and get the ball, I would say, from 15 feet from the line to the line with, with some momentum, you can you can get an easy double, not just a, a, a hit. So uh, in the postseason, championships are won by teams that seize uh, opportunities and take advantage of them and give in, so to speak. All the guys that are low to high, you know, launch angle guys, if they give in 
just to get on base and get that pitcher to work from the stretch, it's going to going to be a big plus for the team, and they're going to show leadership. You know, 1981, we were talking to uh, Ritz, Rick Sutcliffe about this yesterday because he was calling the game on ESPN. And I just remember 1981 as a kid of that great World Series between you guys and the Yankees. And we don't even think about it being the, the labor stoppage, the two different halves and all that. I mean, we just remember you guys won the World Series. You got the World Series ring. It was a great World Series. It's kind of it's a little different because we're dealing with a pandemic now, but I mean, it's the same thing. I think whoever wins this, we're going to look at and go, man, this team had to go, whoever wins had to go through so much. They had to go through COVID, social injustice. Uh, we talk about if it's a California team or a West Coast team, the air quality has been so bad. Do you see some similarities from 81 in this year? Well, you know, um, when there are these years that are challenged by uh, abnormal situations, um, and as long as it's the same for everybody, then, you know, history books will take note of, of that season, the specifics of it, and, uh, and give credit to the ultimate champion for just what you said, making adjustments, uh, sacrificing, uh, doing all the little things to, uh, to be successful. Um, really, you know, it, it, Really taking the, the, the term, you know, we instead of me in winning a championship. And people say, oh, there's going to be an asterisk by, by this season. I don't think there should be an asterisk. But this, the, the biography of the season will tell the tale. And the team that wins is going to be the, the world champion. And, uh, and so be it. So it's always, if it's always fair for everybody, then that's just the way the season has to be designed because of, uh, because of, um, you know, abnormal situations. You know, you played for two great managers, two Hall of Famers, and uh, happy birthday to Tommy Lasorda. It was his 93rd birthday yesterday. And then, of course, the great Dick Williams, who managed the A's of two world titles, and then you were with Dick in San Diego uh, when, when you guys took on the Tigers. What does it mean when – to, to have that strong leader, to have that guy that you have, that you have the ultimate confidences when he's making those decisions because you played for two of the greats. Well, also Walter Alston. Um, yeah. He was my first manager, and I actually uh, we're working on a book now called The Journey, uh, and it's somewhat of an autobiography. But the first day uh, that I actually fell in love with a game, uh, my dad was a Greyhound bus driver. And at the end of March of 1956, he came home living in Tampa, Florida. And he said, you want to skip school tomorrow? And I said, gosh, Dad, yeah, you never said that before. <laughs> what are we doing? He said, well, I have a charter to pick up the Brooklyn Dodgers from the Tampa airport and take them to St. Pete to play the Yankees in an exhibition game. And I thought it might be a great father and Sunday. Well, it was. That day I got a chance to bat boy for the world champion Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, to sit next to Hodges and Reese, have uh, Jackie Robinson literally sit on my lap. He didn't see me. <laughs> and he goes, oh, my God, I'm sorry, son. I'm thinking, Monday show and tell. Nobody's going to believe Jackie Robinson sat on my lap, but uh, and uh, and subsequently, twelve years later, with the, you know signing with the Dodgers, and ever since then, the evolution of my life, which has been a blessing. But uh, you know, just like anything, um, you know, history is important. You got to understand that, and uh, and you got to you got to flow with. It. You know, life is all about making adjustments and 
And I, like you tell the kids, not making the same mistake twice, learning from our mistakes, knowing that we're all fallible, but uh, still trying to make a difference uh, in how we're blessed. So, you know, this season is one that, uh, God willing, there won't be another one quite like it, but we're all going to learn from it. Well, let's end on this because I always want to bring it up in case people don't know what a great football player you were at Michigan State as a defensive back. Uh it's nice that we're, you know, because not having Big Ten football was like, wow. And I don't think we're going to have Pac-12 football, but your Michigan State Spartans are back. Amen. You know, I think the Big Ten thought, oh, we're going to set the way and, you know, we're going to cancel early. And all of a sudden, the ACC and the SEC, everybody got in line. And, of course, Pac-12 uh, is still sitting out there. I can't believe it. Um but thank you for the compliment of, it, of being a, a good football player. I, I love playing the game. I think, you know, come a couple of years at Michigan State, because at that time you could sign professionally after your uh, sophomore year in baseball, uh, were great molding years. I learned so much. I got a chance to play games at Notre Dame. And uh, USC came to East Lansing when I was a sophomore, and they had a tailback by the name of O.J. Simpson, who uh, they beat us in a great game, 21-17, and I uh, punished him four or five times, I think. But uh, I've learned so much. And, and you talk about leadership and talk about the great managers that I had, Alston and Lasorda and Williams. But I played for Duffy Darty, who was a Hall of Fame football coach and uh, the great Irishman who was a great storyteller. And, uh, you know, I've had, I've had great men and, and of course, I think every successful man has, has a, a mother that molds them and teaches them. And, you know, I was an only child and, uh, and my mother was, uh, my dad was the big gentle bear that everybody loved. And mom was the disciplinarian and the combination of both of them, you know, I thank God for, but, uh, being around leaders and listening and learning and thinking about, you know, why they were successful. And I've been able to take, a lot of those reasons and, and uh, mold them into my life uh, is quite a blessing. So, um, you know, it's, it's times like this where leadership is so very, very important. And I know uh, my wife, Candace and I, uh, you know, in our family, and I know there are millions of others that try to lead by example and doing all the things during this pandemic that, that uh, we can be responsible for and to uh, thank God for what we have and, to help uh, help all of us endure in this pandemic, God willing, will will keep uh, diminishing, and we'll learn from it and go on. So, uh, but it's nice like tonight, where two good baseball teams are going to play, and they're going to learn from each other because uh, they may just play each other in a in about two or three weeks. So they've got to learn as much as possible in these three games for the time when they may play each other. Steve, it is always an honor to have you on the program. We really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully sure. we can do this in the postseason, and hopefully we will be talking about the Dodgers and the A's in the World Series. <laughs> That's right. It'd be a great match. That was my first World Series in 1974 where, uh, where the A's were, were going about their trilogy, and we were a bunch of young kids that, you know, Walter Olson was trying to wipe our noses and uh, kick us in the behind once in a while. We learned a lot from you know, the old veterans of the A's back then. And that's why, you know, we went to three more World Series in the next eight years and then finally a World Championship. But I always say that 74 experience really paved the way for future success. And I uh, got to thank the A's for teaching us. Amen. <laughs> You're the best, Steve. Take care and be safe. You too. Bye now. The great, the great Steve Garvey.
It's just great catching up with these classics. Here's another one for you. Rick Sutcliffe, National League Cy Young Award winner, National League Rookie of the Year, three-time All-Star, led the National League in wins and ERA, you name it. The guy did it all, and now a broadcaster for ESPN, as he was calling the A's game. Here is the former Cy Young Award winner, Rick Sutcliffe. Well, now joining us, he was the National League Cy Young Award winner, the National League Rookie of the Year, a three-time All-Star, a Roberto Clemente Award winner, led the National League in wins, the AL and ERA. The great Rick Sutcliffe is with us here on A's Cast Live. How are you, Rick? You know what? I'm doing well. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, Always enjoy talking baseball, particularly with, uh, you know, a couple of teams that, that have a chance to win it all. Yeah, it's exciting times. I, I mean, it's the only thing that's you know keeping us going during these trying times. But the A's winning and playing every day and winning the division for the first time since 2013. But what I've been saying to everybody is this is truly a tournament. And in a tournament, everybody has a puncher's chance. Chris, you're exactly right. And, you know, the thing I think about with everything that's gone on um, since spring training was shut down and all of a sudden we start back up and then Miami has problems and St. Louis has problems. I mean, I, I got to be real honest with you. There was a lot of doubt, I think, and, and a lot of our minds as to whether we would get to this point. And, um, you know, uh, we, we were talking about it earlier, how everything's different. Um, you start off, the, obviously, the very first thing is uh, playing a sport without fans. Um, it, it just doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever. Um, as Tim Kirchin was writing earlier today, it's, for a lot of people, it's just not fun. But I'll be real honest with you. When, when finally we had a live sporting event on television, and it was golf, probably, I don't know, three months ago or whatever, I'm normally a guy that will go play golf, and then I'll, I'll tape it and come back and watch it later on in the evening. I sat there and watched all four days, every moment of it, because I missed it that much. And, you know, Chris, like we were talking, even though uh, I'm going to be down in my basement broadcasting the game tonight um it's an honor to be a a part of something like that a small part uh bringing a live event to somebody because i know how much i enjoyed it yeah i mean even today i was watching the uh tiger woods event where they have rory out there and uh, jt and they're showing off his new course and like, yeah, stuff that I normally wouldn't watch, I'm watching more than ever. And then I'm thinking about this. This is a really good matchup. And end of, this, end of the season, you know, we've been calling it iron sharpens iron. I think it's good for the A's, and I think it's good for both the Dodgers to be playing some stiff competition right before you hit the playoffs. What do you think of that? I, I totally agree with you. And, and the thing that's exciting for me is that, the, you know, the off day yesterday for both of the teams, so – there's a lot of guys that, that, that are going to want to get their at-bats. They're going to go out there. Uh, we got a couple of, of outstanding right-handers on the mound, and uh, Frankie Montas, and you got Dustin May. Uh, yeah, I, I, think, I think this will be, to me, a little bit like spring training for the Dodgers and that, you know, a lot of their starters are going to want to get three or four at-bats. They know what they've got locked up. They know what they need to do and, and when they need to be ready to go. Uh, on the other hand, we know that, Oakland's got a lot more involved. You take a look at where they're at in the standings. You're talking about the number one seed, which is possible. Right now, as we know, they sit in the third seed. Uh, you know, we know how well they played at home all year long. I, I just think that uh, this is probably a little bit bigger game for Oakland. And I think because of that, uh, I think it'll be managed that way by Bob Melvin. How about the Dodgers? I mean, 
they're they're a powerhouse. Their run differential is amazing. Uh, when you look at winning the division eight straight years in the National League West, of course, that's never been done. Only the Braves and Yankees have had a better run than that. But just talk about the firepower and, and what a incredible roster they have in Los Angeles. You know what, Chris? I'll give you a little key to what my part of the open will be tonight. Okay. You mentioned the eight consecutive division title, right? Right. You got that. The first person you think of, Chris, for the Dodgers is who? Cody Bellinger. I I mean, yeah, you think of Bellinger and what he's done, but over those last eight years, I mean, it'd be Clayton Kershaw. I know, I know you agree with that. Yeah. But think about this. It started in 2013. Remember halfway through the year when they called up Yasiel Puig? Number 14. Yeah, when, when, when D. Gordon came from their farm system with all of his stolen bases, 15, it was Jock Peterson became an all-star. 16 and 17, Corey Seager and Bellinger were rookies of the year. And 18, it was Ross Stripling who became an all-star. 19, we know last year, Walker Bueller stepped up and became a big-time player. This year, to me, the, the guy that came from their farm system that's having a huge impact on what they're doing, and we, we know this year's different than, than, than all of the others, but – to me, it's Dustin May, the guy that's going to be on the mound. So to, to, to answer your question and your point to me about the Dodgers and how they've been so great over the last eight years, yeah, Clayton Kershaw has been a big part of that. But, you know, no, not one person can – it's not golf. It's not tennis where you can do it by yourself. I think that farm system, bringing up and having at least one impact player every year has been the real key to the run that they're on right now. Can I steal that from you for uh, our pregame tonight? A- absolutely. You throw <laughs> it out there now, and then when they hear me say it, they're all going to say that, hey, Sutcliffe stole that from Chris earlier today. Oh, uh, no, no, no. You're too great. I-, I will give you the credit for it. I just, it, it is a really great point. Uh, just the depth that they've had, their 40 man roster, their minor league system. And I think that's why it's now for everybody. They need to win a title. They haven't won a title since they beat the A's in 1988. They've had all that success. The only thing they're missing is that ring. Let me throw a story at you. Um, Years ago, I'm in the Yankee clubhouse opening day after they had won. Derek Jeter had won his fifth World Series. And Yogi Berra was there. And I was lucky that uh, I'd been on a bunch of Nike trips uh, with Derek Jeter. I was able to stay in there when a lot of the other media were, were asked to leave. And Yogi Berra walked up and, and just, you know, respectfully said, way to go, kid. Congratulations. He goes, now you're halfway there. And you know what he meant. You know that a lot of baseball fans know that Yogi Berra won 10 World Series. And Derek Jeter looked up and he said, Yogi, he says, with total respect, he goes, I just want to tell you that when you won those 10 World Series, you had to win 40 postseason games. We've already won almost 60 postseason game so to your point that you made earlier you know you think about all the titles and things that the great teams won in the past it's so much more difficult now you know you you needed four wins back then then all of a sudden you needed 11 and and I don't even know I can't even count with the I think it's going to be 12 or 13 wins that you're going to have to have now after you qualify to get into the postseason so um, it's just become more difficult but I'll be honest with you as a fan I think it's even become more exciting. Well, and I've been talking to a lot of the A's people about this because, you know, we're all at our homes. We're not traveling around like these guys are. And to think that, you know, from COVID to the 
social injustice to, you know, the A's potentially are going to run into a hurricane in Houston. And then, as you know, being out here out west, the air quality, this has been such a brutal season on these guys. I really hope people, whoever wins it, people don't say, ah, they only played 60 games. This could potentially be the toughest World Series ever to win because you're now in a tournament plus all that stuff I brought up. And, you know, as Tim Kirkson's writing that, hey, this isn't any fun. I mean, Whoever wins is going to be – that's going to be a tough roster right there. I could not agree with you more. And, you know, the first thing that we all think about is, is what's going on in our country right now and how there are so many issues that, that are far more important than playing baseball. But um, I, 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 I said all along when this thing picked up again and people said – um, you know, it's not going to be the same. The World Series champion is not going to be looked at like they have in the past. Let me throw one thing else on you. In 1981, I was a member of the Dodgers. Um, all of a sudden, we won the first half, and we went on strike for almost two months. When we came back, the team that won the second half, you know, if, if you won the first half, it didn't matter. You played the team that won that finished second in your division. So. We played 53 games, I believe, and then it, if we picked it up again, it was 58 games or something like that. And a lot of people thought that that championship was going to be tarnished. Well, no, it's not, because everybody knows it was the Dodgers against the Yankees. The Dodgers were down two games to none. Fernando Valenzuela, like he had done all year, stepped up big time with, with a victory there. Uh, I, I think in a lot of ways, and I said this from the very beginning, that this year could possibly look at like 1981 was, and I know. When people look back on 81, as a baseball fan, you look back on it with a lot of excitement. You, you, you still got a beautiful World Series ring, right? I did, and my wife has a beautiful pennant that goes on her neck. And, uh, you know, it, it's much fun, as much pride as I take in that one. I'll be honest with you, I, I was blessed back in 2016. I've been a guest instructor, Chris, with the Chicago Cubs since Theo Epstein took over. And I, I'm in spring training every year, and, you know, I go to Wrigley every chance I get. Uh, unbelievable that uh, before the ceremony was over the night that everybody got their rings, the players and coaches and all, uh, Theo brought up Eddie Vedder, uh, obviously the lead singer of Pearl Jam. He brought up Eddie because he's been a lifelong Cub fan, being there in Chicago when, when, he, when he grew up. Uh, Eddie and I got a ring at the same time. So uh, I take a lot of pride in that one. I, I know that I did everything I could to bring a World Series uh, ring to the Chicago Cubs. Couldn't get it done, but the team that's out there right now, a lot of those guys are the guys that did get it done. You know, let's end on this. Oakland doesn't get a ton of national coverage, but we've had some conversations with some players who just say, you know what, the reason why we're here, and you could really say the last couple of years, but really this year, because the year has been so tough, that Bob Melvin has been the rock for this team because there's been so many issues. You know, we don't know what guys have issues away from the field, let alone your issues with the field and all this stuff going on. But these players are saying they would not be where they are right now if it wasn't for the leadership of Bob Melvin. How is he? I know he's one manager of the year three times, but how do people inside the game view him as a skipper? I think the number one thing that you think of with Bob is, is the respect that I hear from his players. And I have, I have since he took over, I think it was around the middle or towards the end of, of 2011. Uh, I think of his honesty and how he's able to be honest with players about, you know, you can do this and you can't do that. I think about how he has to have uh, a, a, a deeper bullpen 
than most of the other teams have to have because he doesn't have the, the big-name starters. They don't bring in, you know, the Garrett Coles and, and, and the guys like that. So he's got to be able to, to, to finish the game. A lot of times after the fifth inning where a lot of the other managers try to hold it down in the, in the eighth and ninth. But the one thing that I think of uh, about Bob Melvin is, as I thought of with a lot of former catchers who have become great managers, is that the, the two things they know. They know how to handle the bullpen because a lot of times as a backup catcher, you're down there in the bullpen. When the phone rings, you know what's going on. Those guys converse it. But he, here's two things. He knows how to get a pitcher, a starting pitcher, deep into a ball game because he's done that. And he also knows what it's like to be swinging a hot bat and to be struggling as a player. So he has the respect from both of those guys when he brings you into his office to talk about something. And, you know, he pinches, I believe, you know, again, this year, as much as anybody has anywhere at any time. But it's not because he doesn't like the person that's up there. It's because he's got a hunch in his own mind, and he's also got statistics to back it up. Rick, I grew up watching you play. So much respect, and uh, you as a broadcaster as well. We'll be watching you tonight on ESPN. Be well, be safe, and let's talk in the postseason. Yeah, you know, if the A's are in the World Series, you've, you've got my phone number. You know where to find me, buddy. Always great catching up with these guys. Also, a guy that does a little Dodger television. Used to be the GM of the Dodgers, assistant GM for the San Francisco Giants, and now a scout, believe it or not, for the San Jose Sharks. Longtime friend, love this guy. Here is Ned Coletti. And it's always a win to have our friend on, Ned Coletti. Ned, how are you? Hey, doing okay. Doing all right. Thank you. Yourself? Uh, we're, we're, you know, the, the A's have clinched. We're the only team that's clinched the division. So, uh, we weren't going to have to deal with it anyway, but you know, Ned, two straight years of losing in the wild card game after winning 97 <laughs> games. That's brutal. The wild card game. That's a tough one to be in after 162 and winning 97. That's, uh, it's unfair in a lot of ways. You've been in this game a long time, and you've seen a lot of stuff, but this year, as we're starting to get some articles out here of just about how tough everything has been on these players and these traveling parties and COVID-19 to the social injustice, and we mentioned there was almost a hurricane with the uh, athletics when they were going to Houston, and now the air quality that they're having to play in out on the West Coast. I mean, there's never been a year like this. What, what, what do you think how tough it's been for I like to say the players and the whole traveling party. Well, it's it's obviously totally different. Uh, life is totally different pretty much everywhere and pretty much for everybody, whether you're an athlete uh, or not an athlete. I think it's um, it's probably been a pretty good wake-up call to a lot of people to um, how good it, we had it, so to speak, and, and the freedom to move around, the freedom to be with people, the, the freedom to travel. Uh, the freedom to travel as a team and and uh, get to a city and if you get there early enough maybe grab a dinner out and and uh, you know all all the trappings of the life and the lifestyle. People used to tell me you don't have a job, you have a lifestyle, and I think it's it's obviously been different. And you know I congratulate and I, I took my cap to so many people that had to figure this out. And uh, you know the baseball is and and hockey is the two businesses that I've been in for a long time. And as I as I look at what the NHL has done in Toronto and Edmonton, and now just Edmonton, remarkable, no positive tests. As I look at what baseball has done uh, with far more travel than uh, than hockey or the NBA, and uh, a little bit of rough going early with some teams with uh, multiple positive tests, 
but really not much lately. And I, th- I think it's shown great discipline, great planning. Um, hard to do. Hard to get that many people in that in so many different places uh, to follow the same the same line, so to speak. And I think it's uh, it's a tribute to so many people that they've been able to have a, a season with very little interruption, except for St. Louis that had a lot of games to make up. Miami, a little bit of the same. But by and large, it's, it's, I think it's remarkable that we are where we are. Uh, if you look back 12 months or even eight months, but I think it's remarkable where we are, too, in some ways, if you look back four or five months. Yeah, and Major League Baseball, the fact that they've been able to adapt as they go, and they reached out to the NBA, and they reached out to the NHL. How's the bubble working? And now – the A's and everybody going to be in the postseason. We're now going to go into a bubble. Just how smart do you think? Because obviously working for the Sharks and following hockey, you know how well that bubble uh, has worked. How important is it for baseball to get in one of those bubbles? I think it is imperative at this point in time. Let's face it. You've got a very compacted postseason schedule. You've got an extra round of three games uh, for every team. You've got more teams involved. Um, so you you really can't have a let's go back to the St. Louis situation where they were they were missing so many games or, or Miami so we're missing so many games. You have a playoff team that that happens to. How do you do that? I mean, you're going to really you're going to shut down the entire postseason for a while. So you really have to guard against it. It's one thing in the regular season because you can make an adjustment here or there. If somebody's played a few less games, OK, you know, you know, you've got maybe three or four or five weeks to make them up or six weeks to make them up, or you've got another system that you could put in place. But when you're talking about the playoffs and how much is at stake uh, and how many players have really kind of sacrificed to get to this point and front offices and travel people and everybody, I don't think you can have any misstep right now. And I think that, that putting people in the bubble, so to speak, I think it's, it's a wise choice because uh, you look at the NBA and you look at the NHL, there's been no interruption, and that's what baseball needs to, to finish this thing off. You know, this is a, this is going to be a good series. And I remember down at spring training before we shut down, a lot of people said, hey, this could be a World Series preview between the athletics and the Dodgers. You've been covering the Dodgers on television. How excited are you to see this kind of matchup, kind of, you know, two really good teams matching up right before the postseason? I think it's great. Um, I think it's great for baseball. I also think, you know, I, I wish Chapman was playing, as I'm sure a lot of Oakland people do. Um, one of the things about the Dodgers this year, and they've been terrific, is that the competition has not been able to match up to them. Uh, San Diego's gotten better. It's been a couple good series here and there. But by and large, this team is, is on a tremendous pace, probably 115, 116 win pace if you played 162. So of a historic nature, but the competition, in my opinion, has not, has not really been a match for it. Teams can pitch three, four, five innings. The game gets longer. Their pitching gets thinner. Dodgers grind out at best. They figure out a way to do damage, and they can almost win any game they play. So I think playing a team like Oakland, a really good team, excellent team, well-managed, well-put-together, I think that that is really what the Dodgers need at this stage because I'm not sure – I'm not sure the Dodgers know how good they're going to have to be as you get deep into October. They got a pretty good feel how good they need to be in the national league, but I don't think they have any idea if they're fortunate to get to the world series 
how good they're going to be, how good they're going to need to be. And I think that they're playing good competition. I think it, it shows you where you're at. I also think it only makes you better. Yeah, you're talking about the two best bullpens in Major League Baseball, and the kid you got uh, going tonight, May, uh, Ginger Guard, he's out there throwing 100. I mean, just the talent, Walker Bueller, the talent that the Dodgers have. And and, and what, Ned's, what's going on with Clayton Kershaw? He's back. He's 6-2 and two with a 2.15 ERA. I mean, my, I mean he's, he's looking like the Kershaw of old. You know what? I think he's healthy. I don't think he's always been healthy the last few years, and I think that uh, knowing him, having drafted him a long time ago now, back in in '06, uh, I've known him since he was 18 years old. That's kind of that's kind of crazy when I think about it. But it's he he was always one of those guys that you had a fight to get off the mound. He would not take a DL or an IL now. He would not miss a start. He would not he would he would fight to consistently compete. And I think the last couple of years, while he did, and he spent a little bit of time on the IL. But it was probably a shorter period of time as, as he would let himself stay. But I think this year, uh, I think since really the first 10 days of the season, he's been so sharp with what he brings. I think his fastball's got a, a little bit more life to it, maybe another mile per hour, which may or may not be a big deal. But the life of the pitch is, is stronger. I think the, the crispness of a slider is also a, a byproduct of that. And the curveball's been great. And let's not forget, the kid's got – incredible intellect he knows you know as every great pitcher that's won a lot of games knows and this man's about 100 games over 500 lifetime and I think the <laughs> highest winning percentage of any left-handed pitcher in the history of the sport crazy but I mean that's how good he's been he knows how to pitch and we, we see a lot of young guys come up and they they know how to throw and they may have command from time to time but you know pitching and throwing is, is two different parts of the craft and he knows what he's doing. He's, he's always had intellect. He continues to refine it, and he competes like crazy. And now he's, he's, I think he's feeling better than he has probably in three seasons. So I think that has added up to what you've seen. I think he's got a shot at winning a fourth Cy Young. Wow. That's, that's unbelievable. And also unbelievable is they're starting to get hot. If you look at Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts and Justin Turner, I'm looking through these game notes, and it's just, you know, over the last eight games, six games. So their offense is really starting to round and form right before the playoffs start. Well, in the case of Mookie Betts, you know, you watch him from you watch him from a distance when he's in the other league, and you go, wow, this guy is really a good player, probably top five in the game. Then you watch him play every day, and he might be top one or two in the game, depending on who you're talking to. The thing I, I really respect and, and uh, admire of how he plays is the attention to detail. There's nothing that slips by him. A secondary lead, uh, getting an extra, uh, moving just a, a, tad, a tad to the left or the right in uh, right field, uh, knowing where to throw, knowing where to throw to the cutoff man. All these little details that people think are, well, un- inconsequential, they make you a great player. There's no doubt there's a lot of players with a lot of talent. There's few in my history that have the attention to detail that he brings. And you talk about Justin Turner. He's, you got, you got Betts and Seager going one, two in this lineup, right-handed, left-handed. If Betts wasn't on this team and the team had the same record, Seager would be getting a lot of talk on MVP. He's been that good. And then you got, you got Bellinger who struggled a lot of the year had a real good stretch, got hurt, come back and he started to get a little bit hot right now. Uh, but Justin Turner uh, doesn't get a lot of the, the headline to it, but he sits right in the middle of it. 
and and he is such a stabilizer for your lineup, stabilizer for your locker room. Uh, he's become a very good third baseman. When we signed him back in 14, I signed him because I knew he could hit, but I wasn't sure how good the defense was be. He could probably stand it short, play a little bit of second, a little bit of third. But to his credit, he went to work, and he's become a very good third baseman. He's not a Chapman. He's not an Arenado in the National League, but he's a very good player. And he's a stabilizer, and he's a leader, and he's really developed into all those things in the last five or six years. But uh, it's a very talented team. You know, you'll see it for the next three days. They will grind out at bats. They will make people work for their outs. And if somebody makes a mistake defensively and gives them an extra out in an inning, usually they will find a way to make you pay for it. Ned, you've been in this game a long time, and you know the obstacles that the Oakland A's have from a front office standpoint. But yet they don't use that as an excuse. Six out of nine years, the A's have been to the playoffs under Bob Melvin. Since Billy Bean took over, it's 11 out of 21. I mean, when you sit and look at the success that the A's have had, and you know kind of the pitfalls and the hurdles that they have, do you just marvel how many times these guys end up making the postseason? All the different names, all the different players, but there's just one constant. They're always tough. There's no doubt. And I think they, um, I have so much respect. And I miss the Bay Area for a lot of reasons, but uh, some of it was running into Billy and, and David Force. And uh, they're smart. They're really diligent with what they do. They are, they are precise in, in their thought process. And not everybody's going to be perfect. And, but I do think that they really maximize everybody's ability, including, including Melvin's ability. I think they've given him a chance to really become as good as he can be. I think leadership is about that in so many ways. It's really about whoever you lead, that you lead in such a way that they can be as good as they can possibly be. So there's no regret and there's no, hey, what if? And I think a lot of the Oakland teams play like that. They play to the top of their ability. They play hard. They don't don't take shortcuts. I think playing in the Coliseum is kind of a – while it's a curse in many ways, I think it reminds me of some of the giant teams uh, that I was a part of and some of the giant teams that I competed against when I was with the Cubs. You know, that that environment, it's a tough place to play sometimes. And I think that, that they probably, while they wish they had a brand new stadium and all the luxuries that go with it, you know, th- there's a little bit of grit to the personality of the place. And there's a little bit of grit to the personality of the team. And I think maybe one one feeds the other in, in some ways. But, uh, you know, I, I miss talking to Billy all the time. And he and I had some tremendous conversations through the years, both when I was uh, in San Francisco, then when I moved down to L.A. But uh, you always know that you're going to find a team that is, is well, well schooled and they will they will make you pay, too, if you make a mistake along the way. No, oh, there was there was nothing worse than those freezing nights at Candlestick Park. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> How about it? I didn't you know I, I went there for 13 years there my Cub career, you know, for two series a year, and then he had 89 playoffs. Uh, but when you when you went to work there, 81 games a year, oh my goodness! But you know what? We turned it into an advantage too when we could, because we were a little bit more accustomed to it. But yeah, you're right. It was a, it was a rugged place to be, especially in the middle of the summer. <laughs> yes, it's, it's July, and the fog. Everywhere else in the country, it's warm, it's humid, and the the fog is coming over into the stadium. It's the only place in the country. Oh gosh, we used to sit there, Brian and uh, Dick Tidgel, man, and you could you could count the people coming in. 
you know, because he had those long aisleways at Candlestick Park from the concourse down to the, the first couple of rows, long, long aisles. And we used to go, you know, we've we got a good team. The 97 team was really a great team that played hard. And you'd have 10,000, 12,000 people and about 6,000 blankets, you know. <laughs> oh, man. I'll good memories, though. Good memories. Yep. Ned, it's always great to catch up with you. Uh, love seeing your TV. You know, not we love you having you with the Sharks, but uh, the TV success and Emmy Awards. It's uh, your TV star now. Oh, I don't know about that. I just, you know, the only thing I really know is baseball and hockey, and I'm not sure how much of that I know. But you know, like they say, fake it till you make it. Well, I'm still talking about it, so uh, all is good. I appreciate being out with you, Chris. Yeah, be well, be safe, and we'll talk in the playoffs. Thank you. All the best. Our next interview is with Craig Wallenbrock. He used to work for the A's back in the day. He's a hitting guru, and he's worked with some of the top players in Major League Baseball, and he's a consultant for the Los Angeles Dodgers. And he is just fascinating. The future of hitting with Craig Wallenbrock. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time. We truly appreciate it. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How about yourself? Uh, We're doing well. You know, it's always interesting when you start talking to people who help change the game and of course uh you worked for the a's you were a scout but now as a hitting guru and you've taught all a bunch of these new hitting gurus uh it's it, it, it's fun to talk about because years ago you didn't get instruction outside of the organization now so many people hitting and pitching wise they do get instruction outside of the organization yeah, that seems to be the trend today. Uh, I really don't know the reason for it, but I'm grateful for it because that's involved me a lot. Are you still with the Dodgers? I'm still with the Dodgers. Uh, my role with the Dodgers, I'm uh, listed as a hitting consultant to the organization, and that's basically to the minor league or uh, minor league coaches in minor league situation. That's always a great gig, the consultant, because the consultant never has to be around for the wins and the losses. I take them pretty hard. Well, I got to tell you what you've been teaching these young Dodger kids. They come up and uh, this offense, it's pretty amazing. The talent they have at the big league level, and you'll know more than I, the talent at the minor league level. uh, I I don't know how many organizations in the history of baseball have been this stacked top to bottom with talent. Yeah, I think what's interesting is – you look at clubs like Atlanta and the Yankees who had long runs of winning championships, but they got old because it was the same players. And as you look at the Dodgers, we seem like we're young every year because we have a nice balance of guys we've developed on our organization, plus free agent signings, obviously, like Mookie Betts. But the combination of the two and having players in the minor leagues that we can trade to other organizations is a real is a real plus. So it's been a front trip for sure. Well, the person who pointed that out yesterday, we had Rick Sutcliffe on the on the program because he was calling the game last night on ESPN, and he brought that up. He goes, "If you go back all the way to like Clayton Kershaw, it's like every single year it's 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 either one or two new guys who come up and really contribute. It's like the fountain of youth just keeps." just keeps producing guys for the L.A. Dodgers. Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, Will Smith is the example this year. He's really come on, and it's great because he's a great young man. I'm really happy for him. 
What do you think is the difference, like, from when you first got in baseball and how people taught hitting to where we are now with how you guys teach hitting? I think the big thing is the video. And I was exposed to the video, uh, I can't remember when. It was before I even got into scouting or coaching. Uh, lived in the Arcadia area, and there was a, an old ball player who took the a bowling alley, bought it, and turned it into a hitting cage. But he basically gave lessons based on his video work. The guy's name was Babe Dahlgren. Uh, most people remember Babe as the guy that replaced Lou Gehrig when he finally had to step down. And it was through going in and talking with Babe that I got interested in using video. And the video kind of showed me what they say today, the difference between what's real and what's feel. People always describe things on what they felt or what they were told in the past, but really weren't really observing what was going on. And the video allowed us to observe the hitter. I think that's the big thing for me anyway. Yeah, I, And wouldn't you say we can say the same thing about golf? As oh. golf, you always had an instructor sit there and look at you, and you'd see where the ball was going, and they would tell you. But now, you know, over the years, the ability to use video, now you can see your swing, and now I can see why I'm hooking it. Now I can see why I'm slicing it. And I remember back when I was a kid growing up in San Diego, the legend of Tony Gwynn, where he would bring a VCR on the road and he would tape his own game on the road and then he'd come back to the hotel and he'd watch the video and then in san diego when he was at home his wife would tape the game at home they didn't have video at jack murphy stadium he would have to do it either at his hotel room or or his house so it was amazing how tony gwynn helped also usher video into baseball oh for sure and you know i remember a lot of the old ball players when i first got into it saying, look, I played X number of years, I don't need video. And to me, it was like the caveman saying, my fire's good, I don't need electricity. Uh, it's there. It was technology that was there, and it came from golf. And I think golf was the first to utilize it, and probably football. And baseball kind of was kind of a late arrival on the scene. But now, I me mean, look at a guy like J.D. Martinez, and he's really upset because video is a part of his preparation as it is for so many players. You look at some of the players now that traditionally have been great hitters who are struggling in the short season. A lot of those guys were big video users. They base what they do on observation. And with that being taken away during the pandemic, I think it's affected a lot of people in their hitting. And the sooner we can get back to utilizing that technology, the better. Yeah, and also part of the problem is uh, people figured out how to take that technology and uh, learn to cheat with it. We know the Astros got punished. Uh, the Red Sox, uh, they've looked at the Red Sox a couple times, and there's rumors about other organizations. I just don't know how you allow video. After what we saw, at least the Astros do, how do you allow video during the game now? I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. I, I know that video using to look at your swing or looking at the pitcher and getting a feel for his your timing on your swing from watching video of him throw and seeing how the ball comes out of his hand. I don't consider that teaching. I just consider that using the modern technology. It's when you take that technology and put it in the center field camera and relay that one way or another 
or even having a guy wired and beeps in his helmet or whatever. I don't know the answer to that, but I don't want to wipe out the technology and the use of that technology because some people have overused it. Now, you can make steel into a nice surgical instrument to save lives, but you can use it, make it into a bullet to take it. Uh, how do we control how people use it? I don't know. I really don't. I wish I did. Yeah, I, I mean, me too, because also working in the NFL, everything that they have on the sidelines, you know, video is a great teaching tool. And I just hope that we can figure it out to where guys, for pitchers and hitters, everybody can utilize it. We can get it back in the game. Let's talk about approach, because we see so many guys now, you know, we were taught back in the day as hitters to hit the ball back up the middle. Well, now you can't do that because they got a guy standing there and it's an easy ground yeah. ball out, right? So, right. and they're now taught, you know, guys want to, guys don't want to hit the ball on the ground anymore. Guys want to hit the ball in the air. Talk about the new approach. Well, I don't know that it's really a new approach. I, I tell people say, okay, well, you're the guy that got started this uh, launch angle revolution. And yet I never use the expression launch angle. I just go back to, I, I couldn't hit and I couldn't figure out why. And Ted Williams made so much sense to me. Instead of swinging down on the ball, he said, you want to get on plane with the ball so you stay on the path longer. And as I started thinking about that and started teaching that and figuring out how the best hitters did it, there were a lot of guys that thought they swung down on the ball but they didn't. They they just were natural hitters, or somebody put the teach on them, in Ty Cobb's words, that allowed them to hold angle and get, get that angle and stay through the ball longer. If you do that, you're more likely to have as a miss a pop-up than you are a ground ball. So what I originally said was, I'd rather have a guy hitting fly balls than ground balls. But I never really talked about the launch angle. Somebody figured out the launch angle. One of the analytics people figured it out and said, that's what I was talking about. And I guess I, I guess I was, I don't know. <laughs> well, again, coming from golf, uh, you know, launch angle was something it, it, people got to realize in golf. It's it's not like they were trying to make the players better. They're trying to sell golf clubs. So they had to give you like they had to give you all the golf speak of why you need to keep buying new drivers and new irons. And they yeah. give you a launch angle and spin rate. and all, all that stuff's been in golf for a long time. Well, before baseball ever had it. Right. And it's funny, though, you mentioned that. But the bat really hasn't changed all that much. We use different woods, make it a little lighter might taper a little bit, but if you look at early bats, yeah, they were heavier, but the shape has not changed as much as I think the golf club head has changed. Are you amazed at how hard all these young pitchers are throwing these days where on a nightly basis we're seeing 97 to 100 miles an hour and even more than triple digits sometimes? Yeah, that's that's been the big revolution, and it's changed hitting. Because hitting is just a reaction to to pitching, uh, but I, I never thought I'd see as many guys touching 100 as I see today. And I don't really. I think again, maybe a, the use of video, better mechanics, better nutrition, just better overall coaching, because what the video has revealed to us as to what is the proper sequence to maximize. 
thrust or whatever you're looking for. And would you also say that these hitters are seeing such high velocity at such a young age? So by the time you get through high school, you either go to pro ball or you go to college. So by the time you get to the big leagues, you've been seeing this velocity since you were very young. Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. The more familiar you are with something, the more you figure out how to adjust to it. And I think that's a big part of what's going on in baseball today. You know, one thing that that kind of bugs me about our ball club, the A's, is sometimes we get in that rut where, you know, we just don't make a whole lot of contact. And it's the three true outcomes of home run, strikeout, walks. And there's times when we're just not hitting the ball as a hitting instructor, yes, you want power. Yes, you want the ball in the air. But how do you get these guys back to the mentality of maybe a two-strike approach or maybe you don't even like a two-strike approach? How do you get these guys to make more contact? Uh, that's a good question, and I think that's a, that's a work in progress right now, trying to figure that out. And I think what's happened if I can digress a little bit, is the, the change in pitching. It's not just a change in pitching. It's a change in umpiring and a change in catching. You've got these nice, tight, form-fitted uh, chest protectors and gear that the catchers wear that the umpires also wear. They used to have that big balloon chest protector, and they didn't yeah. call the low pitch. Now they can get down, and for a while they call nothing but the low pitch, but then pressure was put on to call the whole strike zone. So the mound has changed up and down to get pitchers more velocity. The umpiring has changed, and they're calling a bigger strike zone uh, than they ever did before. And the pitch tracks helps umpires establish what that strike zone is going to be. So I think all of these things combined has brought about the changes that we're seeing and is forced and it's just forced the idea, well, it's made it more difficult to cover both inside, outside, backwards, and forwards. Pitchers are throwing more off speed than ever before. So it's not just covering, like I said, one part of the plate. We have to cover up, down, in, out, and because of the amount of breaking balls and off speed pitches, backwards and forwards. This is why I think you have a lot of the strikeouts today. And we're trying to figure out Maybe we find need to find a way to go back to Wee Willie Keeler and just learn to hit them where they ain't. Yeah, especially with these shifts. Um, we know the ball's different. That's That's been proven. Mm -hmm. There is a belief by our pitching coach, Scott Emerson. He goes, there used to be four, six, eight broken bats a game. Now there's hardly any broken bats. Is the bat different, like the sealant on the bat? You know, I don't know. You'd have to ask one of the bat companies that. Just in feeling bats in my hand, I think they're using just better wood than they've ever used before. And maybe there is some kind of a seal on it. Or maybe it's a guy that's just hunting pitches more than ever before. And so he's not chasing and fighting off pitches. Like you said, two-strike approach and try to hit them where they ain't. That meant more broken bat singles, more weak hits. Now it's either hard or nothing with this kind of worshiping the exit velocity. Let's let's end on this. Your time with the A's, you, you were there with Oakland dur during glory times, you know, three straight right. World series. What, what was that like for you? 
at the time I was having a blast. I really, Dick Beauregard was, uh, was our scouting director and he was a great guy to work for. He was easy to work for. Uh, during part of that time, Merv Rettman was the hitting coach and I got a chance, uh, that's kind of what he piqued some of my interest in hitting, just talking with him about some of his ideas. So it was a fun time to be there. Uh, way back when, when Mark McGuire was, first sign, he would come over to where I was coaching junior college, and I'd throw him and a few other guys batting practice before spring training just to get them ready for spring training. So I had this long-time relationship, and it was fun. It was just a great time. Craig, you're fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for the time, and uh, let's do this again soon. I appreciate it, and thank you for uh, thinking of me. Well, that's going to do it for A's Unfiltered. I want to thank Barry Zito, Steve Garvey, Rick Sutcliffe, Ned Coletti, and Craig Wallenbrock. Now back to A's Cast, powered by iHeartRadio. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.